0: This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com.
1: Okay, welcome back. Nate and I took a week off last week, and we've actually spent the past few weeks talking and reflecting on this whole conversation of American Christianity, and specifically how American history and the history of slavery and slaveholding has uh, trickled down and continues to impact our theology and church culture today. So, we've asked the question where can we see traces of slaveholder religion still impacting American Christianity today? And we think it's an important question to ask and explore, both for those who aren't aware that, that that's possible, that we might still be perpetuating bits of theology and Christian culture that have perpetuated oppression and slavery. But also for those who have seen this and felt it and been uh, hurt or burned by evangelicalism, we want to join that conversation and look for ways to move forward and find a renewed faith in in Jesus and a renewed way to live and be in this, this time and culture. So this week, Nate and I sat down, and where the conversation went was really back to power, and specifically, we looked at the parallel between all of the issues of church abuse, specifically abuse of women, largely by pastors and, and lead pastors, that have been popping up in this Church to movement. The parallel between that and the evangelical partnership with conservative politics and uh, this kind of patriotic nationalist uh, defense of the status quo politically. And looked at how, how both of these are, are touching on a kind of default reverence for power that ends up protecting the status quo both within the church and outside the church within the country. And so we touched on how this gets internalized and has been codified as specifically an expectation to be grateful for our institutions and authorities. So this is just one part of this exploration into slaveholder religion. We know there's so much more work to do, so much homework to do. It's why Nate and I've really had to take some time to pull back and reflect quite a bit. Uh, But hopefully this conversation is helpful. So here we go.
0: We've been having conversations over the last little bit, few weeks, um, about racism, history, theology, and how these kind of all, you know, connect. And we've had a few different guests on to talk about that. And then um, previously, back around episode 11, 12, 13, right around there, we did a series on power. And we kind of want to bring that all together here a little bit. Yeah,
1: we've shared a few times now. We're pretty committed to... uh using Jonathan Wilson-Hartgrove's language of a slaveholder religion, we're pretty committed to exploring what elements of American Christianity, and uh, specifically for Nate and I, our background in American evangelicalism, uh, are stained and tarnished by slaveholder religion and wanting to do that homework. And so we're doing that here with you guys. The reason why we did a, a series on power a while back is uh, we just really have seen over and over and over again that most of the issues in culture, and especially uh, issues in church and American Christianity, are largely centered around power, the abuse of power, and I would say, you know, wrong and unchristian uses of power. Uh, but really, what we got into that series was it's kind of just scratching the surface, and it was just one angle of power
0: is the way we want to look at it. I don't think a lot of people have an experience of seeing power gone wrong in the church.
1: Yeah, the series we did, it basically traced uh, a brief overview of biblical theology, really looking at power through the lens of a universal necessity for humanity, but an individual temptation. And that much of what's wrong with our world is that people gain power to use it over others, and then try to maintain that power at the expense of others. And what we see in Jesus is the virtue, the beauty of a life that's lived in opposition to that, where one chooses to give up one's own power for the good of one's neighbor. But there's so many other ways that power plays out. So there's also not just individual struggles with power, but institutional struggles with power. So we've touched on a bit, uh, American evangelicals history with the moral majority and this desire to get people and institutions into governmental power in the country to in various forms
0: legislate Christian So that's like eighties and nineties, moral majority. And then we saw that kind of again. Apparently it wasn't gone. We saw that again in twenty
1: sixteen. Yeah, there's a resurgence of resurgence of it right now, right? So Franklin Graham is currently on tour, basically merging.
0: He keeps emailing me. I don't I never, ever subscribed to anything, but I keep getting emailed. You guys should hang out. I unsubscribed the other day. So Franklin Graham, he's easy to pick on.
1: We pick on him a lot. Uh, But he's he's kind of just the captain of this, right? He's currently on this tour, bridging Republican Party and supposedly Christian rhetoric and saying, basically, if you're a Christian, you got to get out there and vote to support Trump and the GOP. But that's not really where we want to focus. Honestly, I don't think many of the Franklin Graham crew are listening to our podcast. But there are two other ways that power plays out that I think are really crucial to this idea of slaveholder religion. And I forgot what they are.
0: (laughs) This never happens. I need another cookie.
1: (laughs) The first, and this one's really something that's affected me personally and I've reflected and wrestled with quite a bit. It's that the opposite side of an individual's temptation to gain power is an individual's temptation to refuse to accept the responsibilities of the power that they do have, which oftentimes comes with a refusal to acknowledge how much power one does have. For instance, you and I are two white guys sitting here with microphones in front of us making a podcast. That carries a bit of power and therefore comes with all sorts of responsibilities, right? And that's the flip side that in many ways, white America and the church in America, especially the white church in America, has refused to acknowledge how much power it truly
0: does have. Oftentimes, the church actually claims it's this persecuted. Yeah, they're the ones getting persecuted. They're the ones that are like having their ideas legislated against and they're getting squashed in the public square and they need to fight for prior to get back in schools and that kind of stuff. Like that's the rhetoric we hear from the church. Totally.
1: Yeah. And we'll get into this in a minute, but there have been all sorts of surveys come out recently that just show these shocking numbers of white male Americans that believe that white men are the most marginalized people in American society. Hmm. It's crazy. It's crazy. Uh, so that's, that's one piece. And I think we need to dive into slaveholder religion, looking at that piece, uh, the responsibility that comes with power. But then there's this other one, I think it's a little fuzzier. It's a little hazier. Um, there's a part of me that wants to say this might be the most problematic of them all though. And it's just this general reverence for power itself. What do you mean by that? Um, so, so what I mean is, uh, is there's this general, uh, trust in the powerful, in those at the top of the ladder in leaders, there's a general respect and reverence. Um, and we touched on this with, with Jonathan, and I think we just need to keep talking about this, that goes hand in hand with this idea of status quo, a, a reverence for power shows up in a lot of ways, one of which is a default assumption that the status quo is something that deserves our respect in, in a sense, something that deserves our protection or defense, but it also shows up just in in churches, for instance, and the way spiritual leaders, pastors, authority figures are kind of set on this other pedestal. Yeah. And that's a huge piece of what we've been seeing in the church to movement that is basically revealed, not just how much, Uh, sexual abuse and abuse is happening within churches, all of which is a form of abuse of power. Uh, But how much cover-up of those abuses has been happening, which is so many people within those churches refusing to acknowledge the responsibility they have to uncover and call out abuse when they see it. But so much of that stems from evangelicalism in America, and you and I have, have experienced this on both sides, where we were the one in power,
0: we were the the spiritual authority. Yeah. Those people don't want to hurt the church. They want to protect the church. They wouldn't want to do something that would like hurt that thing. Right. Do you mean uh, a congregation or the, I mean like that person that has the power that doesn't speak up, you know, there's, there's like always this, this caution against like hurting this thing because this thing, this church, the church, Big C Church, like we don't want yeah. to do anything to like hurt the church. Exactly. So which you need Little C Church. Don't do anything to hurt the the this local congregation leadership. The the ideas that we have, like the direction we're going with this thing, like we don't want to do anything to stop that in any way.
1: Totally. And that's that's a big part of what I'm saying is I think this general reverence for power, which is subtle because we don't talk about it in terms of power. It just plays out in this kind of culture, but it's one that default. Trusts and protects the most powerful guy in the room, the lead pastor, and that institution. And so to, to go against the lead pastor, to call the lead pastor out on abuse, to, uh, to hear victims, right, is challenging both of those things challenging the reverence for the pastor himself and challenging the reverence for the institution. So oftentimes the rhetoric from the church itself is you're attacking the church. If you're wanting us to listen to these accusations of abuse, victims that come forward are deemed as threats that need to be defended against and protected against. And people in the pews, good-hearted people, honestly, I feel like have, in large times, we get groomed to internalize that to stand on the side of a victim coming forward and accusing somebody would be to hurt our church. It would be to uh, go against that power structure. Why is that?
0: Why would that... Yeah, why would that hurt the church? I don't think I don't think it no, would. No, I know, I, d- I know, but why? Like, what's the thought process there? Like, why would that? What is standing on the side of the accused or being um, a part of the, of a group that like thinks something could be done differently or better and um, more inclusive of a certain group of people uh, that is kind of going against what the the leadership group or even just the lead guy? How does that like potentially hurt this thing?
1: Yeah, I really just think in so many cases, and honestly, it was the story I lived out in my church. It, it really was the persuasiveness of power. Uh, again, pe- people weren't sitting around thinking, oh, who's the most powerful guy in this room? Oh, it's that lead pastor who's got a microphone on the stage each week. But everyone feels that especially in our modern day celebrity church, charismatic pastor, who's doing the podcast book tour circuit thing. Uh, these are like big personas, right? It's the big charismatic personas. I mean, you and I, that's who we choose to be our church planters. Exactly. And that is why,
0: that is why mega churches exist. That's why they work quote unquote. I'm not that guy. And I was actually told that I wasn't that guy. Um, through someone else. But I I was told that essentially I wasn't cut out to be a pastor because I wasn't the type A, like go-getter, charismatic, um, gregarious type of guy that, you know, kind of finds those spots and, um, and dominates those, you know, those spots and can control a room and that kind of thing. So,
1: yeah. So that same guy, you and I both did ministry with him, worked for him for a while. He's a big time celebrity pastor And just a couple months ago, he made a public statement, essentially saying that no one should ever challenge the lead pastor using the language of the Lord's anointed, because to do so is essentially to attack the unity of Christ's church. And that was a blanket statement saying essentially the same thing that I heard within my own church, and people hear hundreds and hundreds of times all across the country, and I'm sure the world, which is basically that there is this spiritual authority who's been put there by God, who gave his whole life to build this church. And of course, this church, which that guy sacrificed to build, is the best thing that's ever happened to that, you know, community or neighborhood or whatever. And it's what God has been doing for X amount of time through that person.
0: You're saying we assume all these things, We right? assume, we assume things. that this is what God's doing. Therefore, to
1: ever undermine that person is to undermine that church institution and to undermine all the work that God has been doing. So it gets to this point where there's this religious power, this spiritualized authority that is used, honestly, to make people and institutions into this untouchable realm. And really, all we're seeing in this Church Two movement is multiple forces, the internet and a bunch of brave women starting the charge, finally coming forward. And we live in this world where people can publicize stuff in a way now uh, that is exposing, honestly, how rotten this culture is that, to me, you can frame it as an issue of, of sexual abuse. But I think what is is actually the case in so many of these situations, it's a, the issue of power abuse. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was, because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) I'm I'm not quite sure that's true but it is available wherever you get your podcasts (laughs) and there's this article that the the point of the article grooming is this uh, term uh, to talk about how abusers with power use their power to groom victims by essentially creating and then manipulating this power differential within a relationship so that the abuser gets to a position over the victim where the victim basically can't say no. And her point was in this article to say that abusers do that to whole church communities. It's not just that this is something that happens to little kids, you know, or highly vulnerable victims. It happens to whole communities. And then actually, this is some of what Rachel Denhollander has been preaching basically for the last several months and all her work with Michigan State and her work with several churches is that e- evangelical church in America is one of the least safe places for victims precisely because so much of American evangelicalism itself and those in charge are able to use the theology, the church, the, the c- Christian culture surrounding it all to groom communities that are the least likely communities to report abuse when it's coming from the people at the top. And they're basically the, the kinds of communities who, because they're following Jesus, should be the kinds of communities that are most committed to standing with victims and the marginalized and oppressed and hurting people. But they're the kinds of communities who are who are actually, in our culture, most likely to side with the abuser rather than the victim. But one of the things that stood out to me in this article is she quoted a survey. and We'll post a link to this. And it's a somewhat small sample size, a little over 300. Uh, 300 instances of abuse in American Protestant churches uh, were looked at. But what was shocking to me is this is of, uh, of sexual abuse at all that was discovered in, in a church community. And two-thirds of the abusers were either the lead pastor or a youth pastor. The entire rest of the congregation constituted only one-third. Meaning far and away, sexual abuse in churches happens not just because guys are creepy and people have sexual issues, but because church power, spiritual power, being a pastor, a youth pastor or a lead pastor in our world gives you a power and ability to abuse people
0: that you wouldn't have without that. You and I are both reading a book right now called Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America by Ibram Kendi. And I think what's stood out to me, I just finished part one and I listened to it over the weekend and it's an amazing read, but it leaves me, it doesn't leave me happy. It doesn't leave me like... uh like excited about life, it leaves me pretty depressed. And the reason is, is because it, this isn't like a Christian book. But the first third of the book, unfortunately, when we're talking about this, goes all. I think he traces all the way back to like the 1400s or before even. It's nearly 100 percent the church and the Bible and Christians who kind of founded and used all these racist ideas. And so I'm hearing names that like I always had heard in a different light, like a Jonathan Edwards, for instance, and you know, we're always told like, don't, um, you can't just discredit someone because they owned a slave. Right. Let's, let's move beyond that. Everyone was owning slaves at the time. Like that's, you know, that was just the time. That was just the, the times they were in. I think what stood out to me in the book and we'll go somewhere else with this, but like, I had always been told that. And then to, to read in there, like clearly in the 1600s, I don't remember the, the name Edmondson was one of the guys. And then I think it was a a small group of like Mennonite Christians who were actually pushing back against these racist ideas and saying, this isn't right, this isn't right. And they essentially got just pushed to the side by the larger Christian community of the time. So I had always been told that's, you know, everyone was thinking this way, this, you know, we didn't know there was, you know, how we supposed to know. And there actually were voices speaking up. There were voices calling this out, Christian voices saying this doesn't jive with how I understand Jesus and how I read the Bible. And they got pushed to the side by the Christian community. You talked about the status quo earlier and the whole idea there. And when you said it, it was crazy to me because after listening to Mark Charles and after listening to Jonathan Wilson-Harkrove, as they, they laid out history for us, especially Mark Charles laid out history. Um, and then this book we're reading by Ibram Kendi, stamped from the beginning, which is talking about basically tracing the the history of racist ideas in our country all the way back. When someone talks about status quo they're saying the way things have been. And I think we just need to acknowledge that the way things have been for a lot of people, the status quo has not been great. And so when you, when we talk about wanting to protect the status quo, which, I mean, let's be honest, is largely the job of this Christian conservative movement in our country, which is the, the single largest voting group in our country is talking about conserving, talking about protecting the status quo. So you just talked about power, you know, in a, in an actual church and structurally like lead pastor, youth pastor, people that are in positions of power. But there's also this other like like political power in our country. And yeah, I don't know, talk about that.
1: Yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, the first thing I want to say is I, th- I think they're totally related. And, and yeah, here's how. how. So the status quo just means the, the current state of things, right? By and large, the only people who want to preserve the status quo are those who are benefiting from the status quo, typically those who are given the most power in the current state of affairs, right? If you're being oppressed, that you don't want to preserve your oppression, you would love to see that oppression ended. The example we just use of, of abuse that happens most times in churches by those with the most spiritual authority in those communities, and how then the the rest of the community so often refuses to stand up and speak truth to that power, but actually protects and defends and uh, and insulates those in power from any sort of critique or accusation or anything. That is itself a communal act to preserve the status quo of that church community at the expense of a victim or multiple victims. And so we're making the point to say, in a church community, you, you have all the spiritualized, religious sense to it that you—I mean, most of us are only a part of a church community if, if we think that this is something God is— at least wanting to exist right like none of us would really invest in a church community if we're like yeah this thing maybe would be the world would maybe be better off without this thing existing right there's always usually especially i think in young churches in church plants in churches with big charismatic leaders and fast-growing churches and especially in big mega churches with celebrity pastors there's always this sense that this is the thing god is doing this is the church this is this is the new movement you got to get on board so then moving from that idea to ever getting to a point where you would be willing to risk the health of the institution to protect the health of a victim or two victims or five victims who that institution is abusing is a is a big shift. And I think some people actually have caught on to say that what it takes in an institution, in any institution, but especially a church, as a part of that community to stand on the side of a victim who is accusing uh, one of the powerful figures like a lead pastor, like a Paige Patterson of abuse is to come to, to the place where you actually believe it would be better to protect that one victim. Even if it means this whole church institution goes down, than it would be to protect the status quo of this church institution at the expense of victims. And, I would just say that's the only just way to view it. That people, victims, especially those without power who who are being hurt, should always have our precedent over the status of an institution. But that's not how most of us feel, right? And I think what happens is, is we buy into this sense of, of uh, belonging and all these things, but especially with the church, there is this reverence for the institution itself, and what you see is for every one person who's willing to risk their next and come forward, you've got 99 people who are willing to turn a blind eye so that they can preserve and conserve the current status of that church community. I've experienced firsthand people that literally have told me they were angry at finding out what kind of issues were going on with the pastoral leadership because then it ruined their nice peaceful experience of being a part of that church. But okay, so here's the thing. So that's the, that's the church side. that's just touching on all, all the issues that have been coming up lately with uh, with abuse in the church. On the political side though, you have the same thing where you have the institution which on the largest scale is our, is our nation, our country, the United States of America, and powerful people within that institution and and many in the culture and many in the church, have internalized this natural default reverence for the institution itself, which is what we call patriotism, and this natural defense or protection of sort of where we've come from and the current state of things that connects to specifically racism and white power in America as something that many have basically been fighting to protect.
0: Yeah, and we've talked it's about um, Colin Kaepernick on the show before, but this is what we've seen happen with this um, kind of idea that, like, of course we're gonna be patriotic, of course we're gonna, you know, defend America. Um, and as Christians, there's not a group that is more into that and more supportive of nationalism and patriotism than Christians. Really, when you think about the largest, like I say, voting block in the country is the conservative evangelical christian right. And so yeah, so back to Colin Kaepernick, like that that's what's happened to to him essentially is you have people that want to say even uh even kneeling for the national anthem when it plays in a football stadium before a, a game, even kneeling for that. Primarily, we care that you are going to stand for that versus whatever you you're actually standing for as a um as a citizen of this country or as a Christian in Colin Kaepernick's case, like we care actually more that you stand for this song and what this song means and don't disrespect the people who have fought for this country and what they've fought for and the freedom that you have. We care more about that than we do what you're actually standing for. I mean, that's, what's always talked about when we talk about Colin Kaepernick, not the reason he's actually kneeling conversation always goes to, is this disrespectful to people who have fought in our country?
1: Yeah, so one of the the points I want to make is that as we dive in and try to understand, like, in what ways are we as American Christians still holding on to or being affected by forms of slaveholder religion is to say that the same aspects of American Christianity that led to the moral majority, the conservative right, the alt-right, and this tie between nationalism and Jesus is the same reason we're seeing time and time again issues of abuse by pastors and cover-up of that abuse by churches and denominations. And at the heart of it is a deeply ingrained reverence for power an assumption that those in power and the institutions with the most power are those that most deserve our trust and our respect and our gratitude. And that is is literally something that you can trace back to the colonial Christians wanting to create a kind of economic power in this new world by creating this construct of whiteness and using it to justify slavery and genocide of native people in order to accomplish the creation and the maintenance of white power combined with, with what Mark Charles helped show a few episodes ago, which is how the, the doctrine of discovery and this idea of manifest destiny were these specifically Christian imperial conquest ideas that, that coming to this new land was God's great project. So whatever this country is, We are like God's shining light. You know, the early pastors in the colonies many, many times used in this horrible bit of upside-down theology compared the Israelites' exodus from Egypt and their crossing the Jordan into the Promised Land with the European colonists crossing the Atlantic Ocean and colonizing what is now the United States and North America. And so you had this sense of God is with us, God's doing this thing, God has, has given us the stamp of approval to conquer, combined with what would play out later, especially when slavery was well instituted, is, and again, uh, Ibram Kenny in his book just traces this all the way through, for the first couple hundred years in the, the slave colonies, slaveholders collectively all agreed that there would be no evangelism with slaves. It was literally this institutionalized agreement that you were not to share the gospel, not to share Christianity with black slaves. Why? Because they were afraid that Christianity would be liberating, would basically... Uh, start a revolution amongst the slaves, and you can literally trace through letters, through pastors, and different slaveholders and politicians, that it wasn't until uh, a few men conjured up a way of construing Christianity as a religion for the docile, a religion that would that would make slaves not lead to pursuing their own freedom, but would leave would lead slaves to being more submissive as slaves. And there are a few key changes. We touched on some of them. One of them especially being reducing the gospel to just being salvation of one's soul that has nothing to do with one's current bodily existence, let alone current communal politics. And then instituting a a completely authoritarian love and reverence for power. And so the goal was to create a Christianity that would make slaves— admire their, their masters more than they would have without that Christianity. And I think this is the way that I still see this playing out on a regular basis. One of the forms that was supposed to take was by making slaves more grateful for their masters. It was almost in a sense of applying the kind of gospel centered, uh, psychology that you see so much in especially the reformed world today, where what Christianity means is you've been forgiven much, so you're going to respond with this great gratitude, right? It's like the gospel is this good thing that happened to you, and so you're going to live this Christian life because you're so
0: grateful for it. Yeah, didn't one of them even say like it's better for them to be in? I don't think it was America at the time; it was like Europe. Than it is for them to be, it's better for them to be have been ripped from their home and their native land. And their their people to come live in Christian Europe um, or Christian America because they have a chance of hearing about Jesus. Yeah, very. It's better f- to be a slave here than to be a free pagan there.
1: Totally, various forms of that argument were made. One, like you just said, better to be a slave because now you're going to get saved and go to heaven. There's also you're better off as a slave because now we've given you civilization, i.e. we've allowed you to be near whiteness. And you're supposed to be thankful for this glory of European...
0: Dude, even like the, I was thinking about this today and I was talking to Al, like the whole washed white as snow, like that that language, um, that was that was popularized to talk about washing someone. I mean, there's this whole climate theory they get into where like, if they're in cooler climates for long enough, they won't be black anymore and they'll start to be white. But that was, that was a popular idea at the time. But there's also this, just this idea of God can wash them to the, the pure white um, white as snow, forgiveness of your sins, white, like all this language. I'm like, I'm not talking about it like that at all, ever again.
1: Totally. One of the points where I kind of reached my just you know, my emotional overload, and this is a slight side trail, is uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Uh, you probably know the name. She's the one that wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Oh, yeah. A white woman, but uh, as a young woman, wanted to uh, abolish slavery, at least work with the abolitionists. And I think more than any other example, and so much of Kenny's work is showing that we have used the idea that since we got rid of slavery, we got rid of racism. And in all of the data, all of the facts just show the story is completely the opposite. That even most of the vehemently anti-slavery people literally used white supremacy as the argument to get rid of slavery. Very few people, white people, very few were were anti-racist and were actively fighting racism. And so Harriet Beecher Stowe writes this fiction book. Uh, supposedly her aim is to basically show how uh, atrocious the life of a slave is so that people would feel kind of emotionally compelled to get on board with the abolitionist movement. Of course, in the book itself are all these totally racist stereotypes about black slaves and what slavery does to those black people. And she's perpetuating all these racist ideas. But it wasn't until I found out that w- one of the other beachers, uh, one of her family members, is literally the first person that we know of who created and dispensed white Jesus in the United States in, in the world through these tracks. Again, this is not these are not like pro-slavery Southerners. <laughs> these were pro-abolition northerners. But who had so bought into and wanted to hold on to this idea of the glory of whiteness, that it was all this entitlement, light, white language mapped onto Jesus and God and Christianity. So you have this, this like darkness versus light. (laughs) And so you're getting saved from darkness. And this would just get stated explicitly in other places. In, like the, the goal was conversion at some points to try to convert people from being black to being white. But in this slightly more subtle form, form in, uh, in this track by this, uh, this B- guy in the Beecher family, it's just this idea of like the, the gift is this possibility of enlightenment and then paired it for the first time we know of in history, these pictures of a white Caucasian mm-hmm. Jesus. And so the, there's just so many data points along this story Again, the thing that stands out for me all the time is I think the way we, so many of us have internalized, again, both in church and in our country, the way that you, the way we've internalized this idolization and reverence for power and the powerful is this expectation of gratitude. So you talk about the Colin Kaepernick (laughs) protest, right? He's
0: just supposed to be grateful that he even, I mean, look at him, he's got millions of dollars. He's got to be grateful that he can live in a country like this. If he doesn't like it, get out, right? Isn't that Trump's language?
1: Exactly. And I mean, (laughs) Trump's tweeted multiple times this nonsense stuff of basically, we're just supposed to all be really grateful. He even did this like sing along at the White House. Like instead of protesting, let's just be really grateful for all that we have and just sing our national anthem and and, like remember how how... How great it is
0: to be an American.
1: Exactly. So link back to the conversation we're having on abuse in the church, right? What is the attitude of a person in the church supposed to be for this spiritual authority this anointed pastor like on, and I look back at my experience like it's gratitude you use the language is used all the time both from the pulpit and, and I think it's just something that everyday Christians uh, internalize is like the idea is we we are to be so grateful for this pastor's work in our lives this sacrificial ministry that to to even consider that he might have abused that woman like that would go against, that would go so against what we owe him. Like we owe him this debt of gratitude, right? We're supposed to be so grateful for the church, like to be willing to break the church up over, you know, an abuse scandal. Like that's not being grateful for the church. And look at the rhetoric around, like literally that's what patriotism is. Like that's this expectation of patriotism is we're supposed to all get around every time a football game starts or whatever and declare how grateful we are. (laughs) to be living in this country by essentially declaring our loyalty to this country as is being willing to, to defend it as is in its status quo. So to protest and say, there are things totally wrong here. People are getting killed in the streets. Our own police officers are killing people.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, that's what I hear a lot with Colin Kaepernick is like, you know, we agree with you, but like, it's the wrong, it's the wrong protest. You're doing it wrong. Like you're being too uh, divisive. You're, offending people you whatever it's wrong but the the, the reality is they it's never the right protest they don't want protest Um, you're supposed to be and I hear this one a lot too with Colin Kaepernick you're a millionaire look what you have look how good this country has been to you you have no business protesting stand for the song sing the song put your hand on your heart get back in line be grateful that you're an American Yeah. Here's another thing. I mean, you just talked about the church a second ago. And I think a lot of people are probably saying this doesn't happen at my church. This hasn't happened with my pastor. My pastor hasn't sexually abused anyone that I know of. And seems like really God fearing, um, humble person that just wants to teach the word or whatever. But what I would say to that is like, yeah, that's probably the case. But we've still structured all of these churches the exact same way with the power all at the top. And don't question that authority. I mean, just try it. Like, don't question the authority. It all works the same way. Even if that hasn't happened at your church, A it could happen at your church. And then B, if it did happen at your church, most likely the same type of thing would happen with don't rock the boat, like don't question the don't question the authority. And it would be like everyone coming around to protect this institution of the church. That is obviously God's thing that he's doing. And we need to keep this thing going. Um, like you just gotta ask yourself, would the same thing happen here? If that
1: happened? Yeah. So, I mean, here's a little thought experiment. Imagine the most powerful figure or, you know, set of leaders in your community. And then imagine hypothetically some young woman in your community ends up accusing one or more of those leaders of some form of abuse. Who do you default to trusting? And I honestly think like a lot of us can can probably if we just pay attention to our bodies probably figure out what the answer to that would be. And in my personal experience as a as a white male christian college educated middle class like I've basically always been in positions of pretty high social power. And it wasn't until I got burned by my church and saw what abuse and manipulation and cover-up looks like firsthand that I, I ever even th- thought this way, that I ever was capable, honestly, of naturally leaning towards the position of trusting victims. It just, I was always on, this, on the side of the institution and, and those in charge, and so I was one who would have just said what happens all the time is people jump forward to do these character defenses of like, oh, no, no, you would never do that. This person could never have done that abuse. This other person must just be a squeaky wheel or why would a victim come forward now? You know, like they're just jumping on the victim train and trying to get fame. And what I learned after going through some of this stuff firsthand, seeing power at its worst firsthand was just how acculturated – I had been to trust those in power. And I'm a cynical, skeptical, hardcore one on the Enneagram who wants to reform and fix everything that is imperfect around me. So I'm not like the happy clappy, just sees, <laughs> sees the world through rose color lenses. And yet I didn't realize how aligned my life had been with those, especially in religious power. And that is a part to me, I'll just say, of slaveholder religion, that I have learned to repent of to get to a place where the the default natural disposition of a Christian is to naturally side with victims and the, uh, the abused both in a church community up against the church institution and in a nation up against a national institution like the United States. And, Again, the th- the threads that connect these two things, it's the same multi-hundred-year project of white Christians working to create a, a class of white-empowered people, at the top of which was white men, ruling over all of the other classes of non-male, non-white people, systematically introduced a love for power into the... Christianity, which at its heart is a is a complete subversion of any sort of reverence for power. All of the challenges to idolatry and uh, injustice in the Old Testament and the fact that the gospel itself is a story of of God giving up all his power, it's unthinkable that the natural disposition of American Christians would be to embrace and side with power. But again, we say like... I say that, right? I say embrace power. And it sounds like, I mean, individuals trying to like become president and, you know, almost like a Marvel superhero movie, right? Like, that's not what I mean. Honestly, in 99% of situations, it's like, who do you trust? Like, are you willing to go up against the power structure? Are you willing to speak truth to power, even if it hurts you? Um, And are you willing to not practice the kind of patriotic gratitude towards your country or towards your church community that you're expected to because you're willing to look around and acknowledge all that's wrong, right? And say, yeah, there are things I can be thankful for. And people are being put in prison at inhumane rates and families are being deported from our our country in an inhumane way. (laughs) And there are police shootings happening all the time. And kids are getting shot in school every week. And I'm not grateful for those things and I'm not going to protect and preserve and conserve those parts of our community. On the church side, you could say say the same things, right? Sure, I'm grateful for what this church community has meant for me. I'm grateful for the role this person has played in my life and if I find out you're in in any way abusing someone, I will throw that all down the drain to protect that that person.
0: Yeah, I mean and even when we talk about gratitude, we saw this in response on our own website, in response to the Mark Charles episode.
1: Yeah, I mean, I kind of thought this was crazy, but I mean, we asked Mark Charles, come on for free, give of his own time to share uh, basically a very painful, ugly history of the United States, and this guy, a white, male, middle-aged pastor... Uh, left a series of comments uh, saying, amongst other things, that Mark needed to be more grateful, even as a Navajo man whose people were carried off of their land, many of whom were led to die in the process. He's supposed to be more grateful for being an American. And then this guy claimed that he, as a a white man, is actually the one who's been traumatized and marginalized, and we need to see him as a victim. And... (laughs) And this is the the last one I'll name here, that it was God's mercy to bring the gospel to the
0: ungodly nations, even in the form of conquering. That's exactly the 1500s uh, rhetoric for it's better to have been brought here and be a slave, but a Christian and to go to heaven than to remain um, where you were as a free person in your country with your people and go to hell as a pagan. Totally.
1: So in a comment thread a couple weeks ago in 2018 on our podcast conversations trying to talk about racism and slaveholder religion, we have a white pastor literally duplicating several of the same racist ideas that white supremacy and slavery were constructed on in order to defend the status quo of America as he knows it and feels it. And the primary piece was pushing back, saying that Mark, as a Navajo man, needs to feel more grateful for what white America has essentially done for him.
0: And this happens all the time. I was just talking to someone the other day about the letter that triggered Dr. King's letter from Birmingham Jill. And if you don't know, I mean, that letter was from the seven or nine or something like that white clergymen in the south that wrote this letter basically saying like hey we agree with you we agree with what you want to see accomplished but you know don't protest you're not supposed to protest you're supposed to go through the i mean they even say like through the through the legal system you're supposed to you know go to the courts essentially um and then this this literally this exact type of rhetoric is what is used today against colin kaepernick Um, a lot of people, I would say the the good ones would say, we agree with, um, the problem that you see, but go about it the right way. Like don't disrespect the flag. Don't disrespect the people that have fought for this country. Don't disrespect the authority. Um, go about this the right way and basically don't protest. And so to to see this like happen in the sixties and then happen in 2018, and then to see this guy, um, on our site in 2018, basically repeating the same crap from the 1500s. It's just, it's, it's crazy.
1: Yeah. I feel like, you know, I've been reflecting on how uh, the way slaveholder religion has ingrained in American Christianity, uh, not a, a healthy dose of skepticism relating to power, but actually just a default trust in power and in those who are in positions of power. And the way that plays out is this natural, instinct to trust and be grateful for those in power and to protect the status quo and to preserve our institutions. And so protest is literally the opposite of that. To, to protest is to disrupt the status quo and to say the way things are should not be preserved as is because this is not good. There are elements here that need to be changed. And it's inherently to imply I'm not grateful for all of what it means to be an American. I'm not grateful for all of America. You know, for Kap- for Kaepernick to protest was to say, I'm not grateful that black boys are being shot on the streets by our own police officers all the time. And it's this, the same siding with power that leads Christians to naturally default to siding with their pastor instead of victims of abuse, siding with the police instead of victims of police violence. And along with that is just this natural pushback to protest. So as you, sh- you shared, even white evangelical supposed allies of the civil rights movement were aligned with Martin Luther King Jr. and the, the movement until it took the form of protest and refused to just acquiesce to the power structures, right? So literally the response was, Hey, we agree with you. We just think you should go through the legal system, through the powers that be, through the all-white courts, through the all-white government, through the all-racist system that has gotten you here. Just go through that. To not go through that power structure, that's crossing a line. So n- not only can you not take to the streets in March, not only can you not stand publicly in a silent protest, not, you can't even kneel on a football field at the beginning of a game because all of it, any form of protest, goes against this deeply held American Christian thing. This deeply held assumption that as American Christians, we are supposed to be grateful and allegiant to both our political and our church
0: institutions and the leaders within those institutions. Yep. Yeah. And this all leads me back to Colin Kaepernick again. I mean, I've said this before. Colin Kaepernick is, to me, one of the best pictures that I've seen of a human in America living out the way of Jesus. When you stand or kneel for the marginalized and forgotten when you're specifically challenging the religious nationalism and how it is turning a blind eye to the oppression that our system is perpetuating, you get completely run over by that political religious system. You lose your career, your money, your life, and that's the way of Jesus. And that's just, it's a great example to give away the power that we have for those who have none and then potentially get destroyed for it. And I just think, I mean, even though he's a Christian, it's it's funny that he's never mentioned in the same articles as Russell Wilson and Tim Tebow and Nick Foles. And I, I truly believe that if we don't see how Kaepernick being thrown out and rejected, maligned and socially and politically crucified is a Jesus style picture, then we have a mixed up understanding of Jesus and what happened to him 2000 years ago. And we're just missing the whole point as we wrap up i think it's worth saying and recognizing like this conversation
1: it it can sound really bleak honestly it can feel really bleak and cynical and and i think we like first just have to (laughs) admit that when we really do dig into uh church history and and what the American church has been, especially what evangelicalism has been and continues to be like, it can be a really bleak story. And I think specifically where we look at issues of power, like I think this is an area where critiques like those of Dawkins that, that religion is, is poisonous are honestly partly right. Like we have to admit that this, this thing where you think God has your back and therefore you have authority to go gain power and use it in the world with God's stamp of approval. Like that is the same thing that leads ISIS to do what it does. It's the same thing that led Paul to seek out and execute Christians before he had his conversion moment. Like it is toxic. That can be poisonous. I think where I've found some hope is realizing that one of the great gifts of the Jewish tradition and the... Old Testament scriptures is specifically that the Hebrew prophets modeled, honestly, I think more so than we've ever seen throughout history, what it looks like to critique from within one's own community, uh, to elevate uh, self critique of the community without abandoning uh, the community or becoming an enemy to the community, uh, where one of the highest values is to actually point out what is true about the people of God in all the negative ways and really see that that Jesus Uh, picked that up and even ran with it. So for instance, in Matthew, right after he talks about this lesson of judging a tree by its fruit, uh, he specifically says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So there's this real sense that like Jesus knew that he was going to be co-opted and corrupted for all sorts of evil uses he knew that so he's he stated that up front and therefore, I think, gave a whole lot of power and this sort of um, mandate even for his followers to constantly be checking themselves, constantly be, be critiquing the church itself, again, looking at the fruit to judge whether the fruit of what we're doing and, and thinking uh, is good or whether it's bad. And so there's a sense in which, okay, if Jesus saw this coming— and this corruption that, that leads people to co-opt Jesus to give them more power over women or over people of color or whatever the case may be, if he knew that was going to happen, then there, there has to also be uh, an antidote here for that. There has to also be uh, at least some way forward that can, can be in opposition to that without having to walk away from Jesus.
0: Yeah, and I think it, it looks a lot like people, whether you're in the church or not, being willing to stand with those prophets, right? And like speak this truth, potentially this critical truth um, amidst the kind of this religious, nationalistic culture and church system that that we are all kind of a part of and being willing to take the consequences that come.
1: No, I think that's really good. And it made me want to say, One, one quick last thing, because this is the state of Christianity or of much of Christianity in America, we just got to recognize that for those of us who value critiquing the church and doing so in any sort of public manner, there will be consequences. The state of the powers that be in American Christianity is such that Those who have anything negative to say about the church or even those who might want to call out abusers within the church are deemed as threats that need to be uh, kind of taken out or eliminated. And so much of you have probably already seen this. Some of you have maybe felt it of, you know, when a blogger or an author will come out and say something against one of the powers that be in evangelicalism, the backlash that can happen is is honestly shocking and brutal. Uh, so honestly, there, this is a, a kind of resistance uh, that I really think takes a whole set of skills and tenacity and perseverance and uh, kind of spiritual sustenance to be able to walk the line of maintaining a kind of faith in Christ while keeping your eyes open to all that can be wrong with the church, and to do that will will come at a cost. Just like all the prophets were persecuted, anybody who kind of stands up to the powers that be will experience some form of persecution. So, I honestly think that's another metric, right, uh, to see kind of where we're at. Is like, are we rubbing are we rubbing the powers that be the wrong way, mm-hmm. or are we are we another body sitting in a pew? you know in in one form or another perpetuating the the powers that be and uh and honestly that's a part of why we're doing this podcast is just to be one more voice that's willing to say some things publicly that maybe a lot of people have have felt but don't feel like they're they're capable of saying it aloud in their own church context
0: yeah and so we're here for you we're here on this journey with you And we'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or concerns or comments or whatever, want to share your story, we read every single email that comes to contact at almost heretical.com. And another way to support the show is just to share it with a friend that um, might be thinking through some of these things as well, or not thinking through some of these things um, to start conversations about them. Lastly, if you'd like to give financially, you could support us at give.almostheretical.com. We'll see you next week.
1: Peace y'all.